Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Melissa Kane. I'm a journalist, an author, and a lawyer here in the Bay Area, and I'm excited to be moderating today's Good Lit program. I am pleased to be joined by Brett Baer. He's a Fox News chief political anchor, and he's the author of a new book, to Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876. Uh, Brett chronicles the heroic life and leadership of President Grant in this book, from the battlefields of the Civil War to his work advancing the agenda of Reconstruction to aggressively countering the Ku Klux Klan. Now, Brett also takes a deep dive into the actions and motives behind President Grant's decision not to run in the 1876 presidential election. And he offers a nuanced portrait of one of America's least understood but most important leaders. We're going to be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to hear your questions too. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in that text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. And so thank you so much. Brett Baer for joining us. And why don't you start by telling us why you decided to write this book? Yeah, thank you so much, Melissa. It's great to be here. And sorry, uh, it's not in person. And obviously the situation uh, changes week to week with all of that. But I'm happy to be here uh, anyway, talking about the book. You know, I, I've become a, a history nerd sort of uh, in that the first book that I wrote was about uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and it took about three years to kind of put together. It was called Three Days in January, about his uh, the end of his term, the his speech leaving office uh, before the inauguration of John F. Kennedy, and, and kind of his life as president, because I didn't know a lot about it. Finding those nuggets uh, of what I think was overlooked in history a lot uh, inspired me to do another book about Reagan. And that was about the final summit with Mikhail Gorbachev and a speech that was really overlooked uh, to Moscow State University that Reagan delivers to students there about communism. And then finally, it was kind of the first sort of like the Star Wars trilogy. It went back to the first, uh, first part, which was FDR, Churchill and Stalin in a meeting of Tehran uh, that I called Three Days at the Brink. And it dealt with the meeting that they have to come up with D-Day and to how, how to uh, prosecute the war. So that trilogy really did work in, in my mind, and it was successful. And I thought there are other parts of history that are undercovered or overlooked. Um, and I think Grant's presidency is one of those times. Um, you know, we often think about Ulysses S. Grant as a general, uh, as a war hero, as somebody who wins the Civil War. But when you hear about Grant and his presidency, oftentimes it is this big sweeping thing that includes he was a drunk and he had a lot of corruption and scandals in his presidency. And what he did eventually led to uh, a lot of strife later on in the South. And I think if you look at his eight years as president, there are really consequential things that happen. And we can talk about them chronologically or we can talk about them however you'd like. But in summary, um, he takes over for uh, Andrew Johnson. He wins the presidency. And Johnson is one of our worst, if not the worst, uh, president that we have. Uh, and he reverses a lot of Lincoln's uh, legacy and what he was trying to do to unify the country. Grant wants to take Lincoln's vision and move forward. Uh, the 14th and 15th Amendments he pushes for uh, to get citizenship and voting uh, for blacks. Uh, he fights the KKK, as you mentioned, with federal troops. And his ultimate goal is to win the peace after the Civil War. And in essence, during his term, uh, he does that very effectively. And um, this book climaxes at the contested election of 1876. And we can talk all about the uh, nuances of that. But the same kind of theory of those three books at the beginning is digging up nuggets in our national archives, which are really treasure troves of information that um, I have a great team that finds and gets this stuff. And then we piece it together like a quilt uh, and make a blueprint of what I think is a really accurate portrayal of a guy that's misunderstood and overlooked in some ways. You know, I've I've thought that if um, 
if Lin-Manuel Miranda was going to do a, a sort of um, a rescuing from history of another figure like he did with Hamilton, I think Grant would be such a great candidate. He is someone that I know in my schooling in Georgia public high school, I learned that he was uh, that he was a drunk and that he had a bunch of corrupt friends that he was uh, unduly loyal to. Uh, and so that is something that I think a lot of people just think about when they think about him and sort of carry with them. But his is such a uniquely American story. I felt like reading this, reading what he went through, reading about his hard times, uh, it was not a, a clear trajectory. There's something really unique about him and his place as an American. Can you talk a little bit about his, his, you know, how he got, we think of him as a general, but there was a lot that happened before that. Yes. And um, you're right. He's a, he's an ordinary man who does extraordinary things and gets to this place in life that, um, that essentially he's the number one American hero at the time. Uh, and besides Lincoln is probably the most revered person of that age. You know, he grows up in not a lot of wealth at all. Uh, it's not poverty, but it's just above that. Uh, and he's born in Ohio, but grows up in Galena, Illinois. Um, he's got, uh, his father really wants him to be a soldier, and he is not that into it. He doesn't want to be a soldier, and uh, he has no interest in being a soldier. But his father gets him an appointment to West Point, and he ba essentially goes kicking and screaming uh, to the military academy. When he gets there, by the way, um, the appointment is under the name Ulysses S. Grant, and his name is Hiram Ulysses Grant. And he says to the person registering him, um, that's not my name. This is my name, Hiram Ulysses Grant. And the guy says, well, if you don't go by what is on this paper, you don't get this appointment. So he changes his name, Ulysses S. Grant, and S stands for nothing. Uh, so, I mean, that in itself is a unique uh, little tidbit of history. He's not a great student. He's uh, 21st out of the 39 at the West Point um, cadets. He gets a lot of demerits along the way, but he's a great horseman. And he is a quiet leader, even in that class of cadets. Um, he leaves there and goes and fights in the Mexican-American War, where he is underneath Zachary Taylor as a general, and he uh, learns a lot. He does some heroic things in that battle. Incidentally, other Confederate generals are in that, including Robert E. Lee, who's in the southern part of Mexico with Winfield Scott. Um, he goes through a time, meets the love of his life, Julia Dent, and then becomes a soldier and in various spots, eventually ends up in the Northwest Territory of the U.S. Um, that is kind of Wild West, literally. But he's alone in a, uh, a fort. And as a lonely soldier away from his love, Julia, he writes that he is uh, bored and he is depressed and he falls to drink, uh, as some soldiers do. Well, you know, he's in he's in Humboldt County, right, which is uh, which is just north of the Bay Area and is a really um, very foggy, really gray there a lot of the time, most of the year. I read that and I thought, yeah, I could see that, especially at the time when it was so underdeveloped. Uh, it could be a pretty drab place uh, for somebody far away from his family. Yeah. And he it, it affects him. Uh, first of all, he's slight. He's only like five, seven, five, eight. He's only 130 pounds. Uh, he cannot hold his liquor. And um, he gets to drinking. His commander busts him drunk while he's supposed to be on duty and says, basically, you can either resign your post, resign the army or uh, be court-martialed. His friends at the time say that he wants to, that he should challenge it and he would get off, but he decides that he's going to resign. And that starts this downward spiral for him in which he fails at a lot of things. He fails at farming. He fails at business. He fails... He's barely staying afloat. He's selling firewood uh, in Galena, Illinois, to make ends meet. He, you and you write about. I'm sorry, just you write about this because this is a really important moment. Like he is absolutely, you know, practically destitute. In in the book, you write his spirit seemed. To, this is 1850s ish. His spirits seemed to be ebbing away. Others noted his slouching demeanor, the grubby state of his dress the far offset of his eyes. At 37, he seemed to be a decade or more older. Lloyd Lewis described him as the ghost of a soldier. 
so there he is, side of the road, selling firewood, this man who would become the president. In just three years, he'd become the commanding officer, the commanding general of Union forces. From that point on the side of the road, selling firewood. And so you think about how does that transition happen? How does it, how does it materialize? The Civil War is what happens. And he is recruited and, and uh, brought into an effort to start getting Union troops up and going. And they realize he has experience. And they realize he has experience at West Point. And from the very start, he starts taking on leadership positions and eventually works his way up to leading and being victorious. And those wins start to topple like dominoes. And he, his name starts going up the ranks of people who are really impressive. Well, yeah, there's something interesting about Grant. So out in the Mexican-American War, you write about how he was, much to his chagrin, appointed to be quartermaster. And But his understanding of supplies and how they work and how much you need and how you have to transport them was ultimately really useful. It reminded me of when you think of like George Washington, who was a surveyor, and that skill became really important during the Revolutionary War when he had to have a good understanding of uh, of the land and uh, and sort of the terrain and how that ended up being a really useful skill that that skill of being you know again he didn't want it but 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 his experience as a quartermaster ended up being something really important to his to his you know role as a general and he also yeah he filled every role that he was asked to do and he said yes a lot um he was not a braggadocious guy at all he was very self-effacing and kind of internal and people said um they didn't know how to read grant and in part that gave him an extra step up on what he was thinking. Uh, nobody really knew other than his re- really close friends. As the war goes on, I mean, he's closest to Sherman and uh, he starts to take this commanding position and um, everybody who writes about him. Now, remember, we have his own words about the Civil War, which are just really eloquent uh, to the point where Mark Twain at one point was accused of actually writing them, but he was a friend who didn't write them. Uh, And it was Grant, who was a great writer, not only a great writer of looking back at his time at the Civil War, but he was a great writer of orders. When people in under his command would get an order, it would be very specific and there would be no doubt about what he wanted uh, those soldiers to do. Sherman said that he was this calm, patient man who had a cold resolve. And he tells this story about Shiloh uh, a battle that really goes south for Union forces. The fields are covered with men who are were taken down and their um, blood is running through the river and uh, it's a drizzling rain. And they Sherman goes up to Grant uh, after a horrible, horrible day where the Confederate troops really surprised the Union forces. And Sherman is ready to say, it is time to retreat. But he walks up to Grant, who is sitting underneath a tree, whittling uh, and looking into the, the distance and the drizzle. And Sherman says, well, we had a devil of a time today, didn't we? And Sherman just looks at Sher- or Grant just looks at Sherman and says, yeah, but we'll lick him tomorrow. And that line, Sherman says, he, he just realized that he could never say, we were ready to retreat. And sure enough, Grant had a plan that the next day they won at Shiloh. And it was a major turning point. Well, you know, you get the sense um, from your book, especially it's very nuanced, that that Grant is a, a sensitive person, actually. And so even though he's engaging in these acts of brutality and directing these acts of brutality, it seemed to me that he's someone who really hated war, that he actually kind of wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible and, you know, to end the war and that, you know, in order to do that, you had to engage in it. And it was, uh, you know, bloody and terrible at times. But but you, and you never get the sense that he's enjoying war or, um, or or what he's doing. He really does seem to be squeamish. And, you know, if you get right down to it uh, about, you know, witnessing amputations and, and, and the like. Which changed his perspective later as a leader, as a president, uh, because he wants to strive at all costs not to go back to war, understanding what war really really is. Um, he was, you know, for the Union, victorious, and in that lifted up. 
But for the Confederacy and for the South, he was magnanimous. magnanimous. He was, uh, he gave them uh, their own rights, their own uh, dignity in the loss. Uh, he let Confederate soldiers leave with a horse or, or a, a gun, um, not saying that they were going to stomp on each soldier. In fact, he went into Confederate camps after they, they captured them or won and said, you know, we are not fighting you individually. We're fighting your leaders who believe that this Confederacy can work. And I'm saying we need to be part of a, a union. I'm not fighting you as a, a soldier because uh, I'm fighting for the South was what his message was. And really, I think that that's his message throughout his leadership is that he's fighting to keep the union in place at all costs. We have some uh, audience questions coming in. So I wanted to just switch real fast to ask you um, question one. If you had an opportunity to have met and interviewed President Grant, what would you ask him? Oh, what a great question. Um, why so glum? No, I, I think uh, I would ask him, you know, what his vision was uh, as he makes this grand bargain. What did he think was going to happen? You know, there's a lot of um, retrospect about looking back at, and we can talk about the, the complexity of 1876, but the grand bargain that he makes essentially is a promise that the South is going to honor uh, equality for Blacks, uh, honor uh, dignity and respecting uh, Black communities, um, something that did not happen, a promise that did not transpire. You know, if, if Reagan was in that position, he would have uh, said, trust but verify. But um, Grant at that moment thinks Reconstruction has run its course. I would ask him you know, what he truly believed was going to happen if he believed the South was going to live up to its promises. Um, I think he did, uh, because obviously in the years that follow, uh, Jim Crow laws come in, the South has autonomy, it does horrible things. Uh, to black communities. And a lot of the negativity in the post-Reconstruction era falls on Grant. And if you look at his life, he spent it fighting slavery and fighting for black equality and fighting for uh, the vision that Lincoln had uh, before he died. Well, you know, so you've written about Grant, you've also written about Eisenhower. Both of these are a sort of anti-politicians, people who were military men who came into the highest office. And before President Trump, I think, you know, the, the two folks who, who didn't have political experience prior to, to taking office, do you think that some of that he might've been a little naive um, uh, at the time, having not had that political experience to, to know, to trust, but verify like someone like Reagan would have done? Yes. I think uh, he was naive in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, in his administration, he trusted people that he had relationships with, but didn't fully vet for positions. And that's what ends up in a number of the scandals. Some of it's petty corruption, but other others of it's significant, but he's not tied directly to it other than he appointed those people in that place. After he leaves office, he trusts again, and he invests in a family member with a, an investment that pays off at the beginning, and gets him uh, some additional funds, but then doubles down and he loses everything. And he is essentially poor after his presidency, which is hard to believe if you think about today's day and age of presidents who leave office and write books and do other things. Uh, Grant is writing articles for a, a magazine just to make ends meet. Uh, Mark Twain, his friend, uh, says, how much are they paying you? And he says, $500. And Twain gets livid and says, you have to be making more than that. You're a former president. You're a former union commanding general. So uh, Twain offers to publish his memoir. Um, so Grant starts writing it. He gets throat cancer. Uh, he writes longhand uh, through the pain of throat cancer, sometimes squirting. They had to squirt uh, cocaine in the back of his mouth to stop the pain. Um, he keeps on writing and finishes his memoir and then days later dies. Twain publishes that book and 
Uh, it's the best-selling book for the longest time of, of that era. Makes roughly $300,000 in today's uh, money. That's about $14 million for his wife, Julia, and their family. But his legacy was really quite something. I mean, at his funeral, one million people come out uh, in New York City, and they line the streets, uh, and they pull out old uniforms, Union and Confederate, and they put them on, and they line the streets. His pallbearers were two Union generals and two Confederate generals. So at the time, he was considered really one of the most significant figures in America. Over time, as the years go by and Reconstruction and the post fallout and Jim Crow South, I think that negativity drops him down in historians' list. And in recent years, he's jumped the most out of any president, 13 spots in those historian lists. Well, we do have a question here related to that, and that was before you started researching to write this book, how familiar with you, how familiar were you with President Grant and his legacy? Yeah, not very well with President Grant. You know, I, I knew and I grew up in Atlanta, uh, so I knew a lot about the Civil War. Um, not a lot like Newt Gingrich, a lot or some of the historians who, who study the Civil War. But I, I knew a little bit. Uh, and I, that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to dig into it is uh, to look into Grant's presidency. It's kind of the same way I approached Eisenhower and that I knew Eisenhower as the commanding general of World War II uh, and D-Day and, and all of that, but I did not really know about his presidency. And after researching both of these, I've come away with a much greater respect uh, for the moment, a much greater sense uh, in Eisenhower's years how close we were to a nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union and how he was the steady hand on the till uh, during that time. And in Grant's years, how close we were to teetering back to a second civil war. If I can talk about 1876, unless you want to go someplace else. No, please do. That's actually okay. right where I was going. But wait, okay. just one thing. I'm yeah. from Marietta, Georgia. Where are you from? Dunwoody. Dunwoody oh, get Georgia. out of town. I went to Marist. Oh my gosh. Um, Cobb County, Pebble Brook High School. I went to college outside of the state, but I grew up born and raised. Sorry. Okay. I was born in New Jersey. I grew up in Atlanta, so I can throw a y'all in every once in a while. Excellent. Um, yeah. Good. Sorry, I didn't know that. Yeah, but yeah, there's Civil War stuff. I, my parents were married on Kennesaw Mountain. And okay. with like, and if you look at their wedding pictures, you know, there's like cannons in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's everywhere. It really I is. I used to go to Stone Mountain as a kid. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's all over the place there. Excellent. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's hard to no interrupt. No worries. That's great. Yes, please. Um, 1876, uh, you know, the, uh, the 100 year anniversary, an embarrassing, frightening election year. Yeah. And so Grant's coming to the end of his second term, and he knows that the country is really divided. And he knows that Reconstruction has kind of run its course. The South is just exhausted from it. Federal troops being down there and maintaining all of that, in reality, uh, Grant feels, is probably uh, coming to its end. And there are many people in the North, even Black lawmakers. And remember, there were you know, whole majorities in some of these Southern states where Blacks had congressmen and senators. Uh, they were owning uh, farms and, and doing all kinds of things during these eight years in Grant. Afterwards, uh, it would take 92 years before the next African-American is a U.S. senator. That's an aside. But 1876, um, this election is, is contested. Rutherford B. Hayes is the Republican. Samuel Tilden is the Democrat. And it's neck and neck to the end. But at the end, it is essentially tied. And there are three states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, that send up two sets of electors. Um, in other words, they're not making a decision. And the whole thing stalls. There is a lot of violence that's bubbling up in the South and even threatened in Washington, D.C. And Grant knows that he needs to step in and do something. However, he doesn't want to put his finger on the scale uh, he would love Rutherford B. Hayes to win as the Republican, but he doesn't want to see it as illegitimate. The biggest thing he feared was that it wasn't transparent, whatever happened, and that people would not buy into whatever the conclusion was to avoid 
uh, tipping back to civil war. So he comes up with this this shadowy figure from Louisiana, Edward Burke, comes meets with Grant. He says, I think we have an idea. This Burke character works for the Democratic governor's candidate, gubernatorial candidate, who is trying to be governor in Louisiana. And they say, okay, if you give the governor's mansions that are contested right now in South Carolina and Louisiana to the Democrats, if you pull federal troops out of the South and give autonomy to the Southern states, and the South promises, like I mentioned before, to live up to all of the stipulations for treating Southern blacks, um, then the South will agree to stay in the Union and Rutherford B. Hayes can be president. Um, he, they create this electoral commission. They make this deal in the back room at the Wormley Hotel in Washington, and it moves forward. And that is how Grant is solving this problem in the moment and trying to keep the Union together from tipping back into this dangerous place. Um, but there's a lot of people who say that was a big moment for the country. The book starts actually on January 6th as I'm covering the uh, Capitol riot. I'm writing the end of the book and um, it just gives you perspective of that day and where we've been before as, as a country. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that is so striking about the election of 1876 is, is, all of the allegations of voter fraud, right, which were probably true on both sides, you know, maybe one side more than the other here or there, but huge, um, huge potential for people not accepting the voting results because they regard them as illegitimate. And so, you know, when you see it happening, you know, to some degree, you know, not even that much, but to some degree with this election, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's both sort of depressing, but also comforting in some way to know that we managed to muddle through it before. Maybe there's a way we can get through it now and, and without a completely freaking out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think the lesson from that and, and the book starts on January 6th and that coverage and kind of gives me a perspective. The book ends from San Francisco, actually, and the Grant statue that's pulled down uh, after the George Floyd killing. And a reporter is asking the folks who are pulling the statue down, you know, why are you doing that? And they say, uh, because, you know, he's a part of the Civil War and he owned a slave. And uh, Grant was given a slave from his father-in-law, Colonel Dent, uh, who Grant then freed shortly thereafter. Um, And then, you know, as evidenced by this research in this book, he spent his life really fighting for equality for blacks, for fighting against slavery, fighting uh, to keep the union together and fighting for um, those elements. So when that statue is pulled down, that image really struck me and it, it, it reminded me how important it is to look back at our history. Because a lot of times we've been places before and we just have to look back to realize how to avoid some of that stuff or to know what the path to the future is. I mean, the bottom line is the takeaway. We have to fight for this republic. It's not given to us. You know, it takes effort and um, there's a constant vigilance that's needed. uh, And every election is the chance to do that. Have we had uh, any other grants can you think of anyone who is a president who has some of these, you know, it's funny what during, um, and, and, you know, don't freak out internet, but I'm going to say, I'm going to compare him to someone, but in a very limited way as a president who was accused of being too loyal to his friends, uh, and not being experienced enough. I was thinking like George W. Bush, someone maybe similar just for those qualities or at least for the perception um, among some people that he, he was friends, was too loyal to corrupt friends, but that's the only comparison I can think of in modern times. Yeah. The good parts of Grant, I think um, you might be able to point to Eisenhower as like a new, new newish or current day, but you know, I can't find a Grant um, right now in the political spectrum. I, I think we should. I, we should have a Grant, a Lincoln, an Eisenhower. Um, there are, leadership is needed uh, because up on Capitol Hill, covering it every day, 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that people agree on, but we never get to that because they go to their corners fighting over whatever the thing that motivates the base uh, that day. And that's how elections have been run in the past few cycles is to fire up the base. Um, Eisenhower said, why don't we agree on what we agree on first and then argue about what we don't? And that makes a lot of sense. Um, just politically, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. So you do need uh, some principled leaders that um, I think we're in search of. Maybe history books will provide that to uh, the next generation. Does our does our political system allow for that? I mean, let's assume there's somebody who's who's got great leadership potential, who's who's a unifier, who's someone who's like Eisenhower or Grant. I mean, I I don't think they stand a chance in a in a primary, for example. Um, that's I, I worry that we're we're not set up to even allow this kind of thing anymore. It's a good question. I think the pendulum swings, you know, and once it swings too far, the country usually has the pendulum swing back the other way. Um, you know, um, if you look at presidents one after another, you know, Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Barack Obama uh, to Donald Trump to Joe Biden. I mean, there are things that those pendulums indicate um, uh, the swing. I think it would ha we'd have to get out of that cycle. And our, our presidential uh, cycle does not lend itself. You're exactly right. For Republicans, Iowa is social conservatives, and New Hampshire, you can't tax anything. And South Carolina is all about the military, and Nevada is you have to build the wall, okay? For Democrats, Iowa is super progressive. New Hampshire is a little bit more libertarian, but still liberal. South Carolina is the Black Caucus, and Nevada is the other side of immigration. But you get through four states, and you are playing to the base four different times, um, and it's, you know, a tough time to get back to the middle. And I, I thought maybe this uh, Joe Biden race in the way it was run, um, that he was going to, to be that conciliatory kind of candidate. And he did run like that. And um, I arguably has not governed the same way in that um, across the aisle negotiation kind of thing. We'll see what happens up on Capitol Hill. We'll see what happens and uh, how this all goes down with these big pieces of legislation. Um, but it's a tough environment to be a leader. Social media makes it that you make a decision and it goes around the world even before you pull the trigger. And um, so it's a lot different than the old days when you had a telegram and somebody whispering what, uh, what some leader just did up in Washington. Now, you uh, got a question from the audience here. It says, uh, you've written books about Dwight Eisenhower, FDR, Ronald Reagan, and now Ulysses Grant. Any similarities between these four men? We talked a little bit about Eisenhower and Grant, but what about FDR and Reagan do you think uh, also sort of flows through? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I thought about just recently. Um, someone asked me something similar um, here in L.A., and uh, one thing is, is that all of these leaders went through a crucible of sorts. Uh, Eisenhower was very poor, came from a very poor family, um, first in Texas, then in Kansas, um, and makes it his, his escape and is, is the military uh, comes from that. Reagan uh, fights through a uh, alcoholic father and bad situation from that uh, to go on to great things. Um, you have FDR who comes from wealth, but has his crucible in polio in which he has to fight through that and um, figure out a way to operate and to barely walk again, but he does. And that makes him the leader that he is. For Grant, he goes to the darkest of dark places selling that firewood on the side of the road. And that's his crucible. That, And I think that that's a unique thing between all of them. Uh, the other thing is all of them had really strong mothers. Uh, Hannah Grant was a stickler and uh, was not into pomp and circumstance to the point where her neighbor saw her sweeping her front porch on the day of Grant's inauguration. Um, she was not into it. And uh, Mrs. Eisenhower was exactly the same way. He came back from winning World War II and she didn't go down to the big parade um, saying that she had other things to do at the house. So um, those kind of figures in people's lives, they do make a difference. 
yeah, I love that. And I love that story of his mother who just felt like, you know, complimenting Grant on his victories and sort of praising him was, was not giving glory to God was sort of not following, you know, the dictates of, of her religion and was, you know, and I think that's a big part of why he was similarly, I mean, not about bombast. He, you know, at the time, of course, campaigning as we know it now didn't really exist, but even if it had, you wonder if he would have ever put up a sign for himself. You know, he just had so internalized that, that kind of humility. I agree. So there's a great story when Grant is uh, called up to D.C. to get his fourth star as commanding general of Union forces. And Lincoln calls him up and um, he brings his son, Fred, uh, and they stay at the Willard Hotel. So they're walking into the Willard and he is in his traditional kind of army slouchy kind of uniform with muddy boots. And he walks into the Willard, which is a high appointed hotel. And the clerk at the desk looks at him and says, uh, I'm sorry, you, we do not have a room for you. Uh, in fact, well, we might have one that is this small closet type room in the top floor. And Grant looks at him and says, well, that's fine, because he doesn't really care. And then he signs the register and it says, U.S. Grant and son Fred from Galena, Illinois. And the guy looks at that and turns white and runs over to the manager, and then they are escorted to the bridal suite in uh, the Willard Hotel. So uh, just a funny little story, but an anecdote about uh, self-effacing, and he didn't really care. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of Lincoln, Lincoln was so important to this story because you you write about the machinations that were happening among generals and um, and other politicians that, that could have really undermined the Union's effort in the war. But Lincoln consistently uh, stood up for Grant and said and promoted him and said, you know, there's no evidence of, of foul play when people were trying to uh, to steal the spotlight, as generals sometimes try to do uh, from this really successful, you know, General Grant. That's right. The more he won, the more people were jealous of that victory and the more they realized that Lincoln was looking to him as his main man. And so some of these generals went out of their way to point out that he was kicked out of the army for drinking. And they alleged that he was drinking on the battlefield as he was having these victories. And that made it up to Lincoln, where he said, well, find out what type type of whiskey he's drinking. I'd like to get barrels of it for my other generals. And, um, you know, so he always had Lincoln's back because he realized he was a winner. And and was active. And, and it was it's shocking when you think about the war, you just sort of imagine generals running out and fighting. But the truth was, they weren't Grant was uniquely aggressive uh, and and action oriented around in the way he operated. And it's sort of, you know, when you think about other other generals, you imagine like MacArthur, you know, you imagine that they were or Meade, you know, they were right in there, but they, they were not (laughs) as eager to get in there and fight as General Grant was. That's true. And he was on horseback and was an accomplished horseman, as I mentioned. Uh, He, you know, was one of these guys that, uh, that forces looked up to, but not because he yelled at them or because he was bombastic. Uh, It was kind of a, a quiet leadership. And uh, I think Lincoln saw that. You know, Lincoln invited the Grants uh, to Ford Theater that night of the assassination. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln and Julia Grant. um, Julia was not that fond of Mary Todd Lincoln. She was, Mrs. Lincoln was not the easiest to get along with. I think Um, there were a lot of ladies not fond of Mrs. Not fond of, yes. I don't think she was going to too many parties, but... um, So they turned it down. They sent regrets. They were going to see their kids in New Jersey and um, they get in a carriage and uh, Grant writes that as they're driving away in the night, uh, as the night falls, that someone on horseback rides and stares into the carriage, uh, staring at Grant. And after they get to New Jersey, they realize the assassination has happened. And Grant thinks back to that and thinks it may have been John Wilkes Booth um, uh, looking at Grant leaving in the carriage. And Grant is is kind of bereft by guilt because he thinks, 
that he could have saved Lincoln and thereby saved what turned out to be a really bad stretch under President Johnson. Well, and I do want to mention the wife, his wife, um, because there is a really nice love story in the in the life of of Grant, and um, and they wrote letters constantly. It's almost like a an Adams kind of marriage. He's he's pretty much they're apart a lot, so we have a lot of correspondence between them, and sometimes for years at a time. Um, can you talk a little bit about about uh, Hannah and and her influence? Hannah is the mom and Julia is the the wife. Yeah, Yeah. that's all right. Uh, But Hannah was a big influence, but Julia was a bigger influence. And um, he, that was, he called his best decision in his life. Uh, She was also a kind of a close advisor for somebody and that time uh, to be that close to their wife. By the way, Grant never uh, drank around Julia uh, and Julia was always around. So that gave you a little bit more evidence about how that story about him being constantly drunk, I think, you know, stuck from his early days, but there's no evidence of that in the White House. Um, He, yeah, writes eloquently about uh, Julia and she really loves being first lady. Um, She uh, redoes the White House. She uh, hosts social affairs Um, as they're coming to the end of their two terms Julia is really, really trying to get Grant to run for a third term and is upset when he says he's not going to run. But she was a big part of his life. And I think that that story at the end where he writes the memoir uh, and really tries to get through throat cancer to be able to do that um, shows you the love affair. Right. I mean, he did that for her to make sure she was financially secure. And literally, literally, as you said, as soon as he finishes and he knows she'll be okay. And Mark Twain comes to visit and says, we've got a lot of pre-orders, basically. She's going to be fine. He dies shortly thereafter. It's sort of his last act of love is to, is to write through the pain there, uh, there at the end. It's, um, it's really, you know, a tremendous part of the story. Um, Now I have another audience question here. It says that, um, what lessons can we draw from history that are helpful where we are today as a polarized country? Because I think that's why you turn to Grant. I know that's why I turned to the election of 1876 during this last election. I tried to think about it and go, maybe it'll be okay. Um, but what other what are, what are the lessons that people should take from this kind of story? Well, I think that's one of them is that we've been someplace much darker uh, before. We're clearly uh, split as a country and it's, and it's not good and it needs to be improved, uh, but uh, we are a resilient country and we always always have been. And uh, the second that you think it's going to fall apart, uh, we seem to find the leader or leaders uh, to take us in the right direction. At least that's what we've done in the past. And so Grant was that leader, I think, uh, at that time. And I think we, we have yet to find the leader uh, during this time, and it may be a little bit more difficult with social media and that sort of thing. Um, but the bottom line is that it's a resilient country, and um, we should be optimistic, not pessimistic. Uh, I think about our. Yeah, I mean, you see the polls where people say we're, you know, increasing numbers of people say we're going in the wrong direction, or even that they're they they're fearing a civil war, which I don't even know, how, like what that would even look like, given the the distribution of people uh, around the country, but, uh, but people seem to be afraid of, of splitting and afraid that things are going to fall apart. Um, And, you know, it's one of the, the nice things about history is it teaches us not to, not to be super freaked out um, about that, that sort of thing um, is going to happen. Um, I do have another question here, a uh, more of a sort of, uh, a sort of uh, current question, and it's: What are your views on some of these election reform bills um, being proposed across the country? And yeah. I, su- I don't know exactly which ones they're referring to. Some go one way, some go the other. But, but your take on any of them? Well, that's right. I mean, these states, um, and remember, it's by the Constitution, um, states that are in charge of elections. So. Um, until that changes, uh, and there's one standard which uh, people are uh, 
reticent to do because they they worry about um, how it doesn't fit in a particular area. It's state counties uh, run their own elections. But some of these are actually offering more opportunities to vote, longer early vote, uh, uh, more uh, mail-in vote. And there's questions about mail-in votes and all of that. But the more people you can get involved in a voting scenario, the better. Uh, and I think uh, you've the one thing that, that every election office should do is, is try to be transparent. And I think if you look at this past election, uh, the states in question were run by Republicans who were being as transparent as they possibly could be about about the vote. There are questions, there are irregularities, and um, there's clearly fraud in every election, uh, but it has to be enough to overtake the difference in an election. And um, we didn't see that at all, 72 court cases around the country. We didn't see that. And then state legislatures deciding to certify the votes and the governor signing those votes. Um, you know, I think focus on the 2020 election should be how to make the voting system better in 2022 and 2024. Do you think that it should be federal? On the one hand, I think it would be good to have a certain standard, but on the other, you know, do you really think about all the vote counts, you know, and all the, the sort of nitty gritty on the ground, uh, on the ground activity that's required. And you wonder if the federal government should be extending itself to, you know, hanging chads, right, um, right. you know, so it's, it's it hard. Does, it is hard. I mean, there is one standard that you think if there was just one standard, everybody could play by the same rule, but you know, you have different ways of doing things in Atlanta, Georgia. It is different than in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And maybe you don't need, you know, 24 seven drive up vote in um, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, or, you know, as opposed to Las Vegas, Nevada, and I, I do think there's a local element to it, um, but uh, I, th I think that there is a lot of debate about the federal federalizing of the election and concern that it needs to be a state job. But that's the debate that's ongoing on Capitol Hill. Uh, and actually, I just remember a question I wanted to just start to bounce back to Grant really fast. Sure. Um, should he have run for a third term? So he actually thought about it really seriously. I mentioned Julia really wanted to. Um, they go on a... Uh, a trip around the world and he is feted by queens and kings and leaders and they all want to come out and see um, a union general uh, who won the civil war and the president who just left and they come back thinking maybe there is one more chance this is even after that that time leaving office um, but in 1876 um, there was frustration about Reconstruction. There was a sense that it was time to hand the baton off. And um, Grant felt like that was sort of his Washington moment, that the next person should take take the uh, helm. And um, he, he struggled with it, uh, but, but thought it was the best idea. Well, sure, but should he have, right? I mean, should so let's just, it. we're just playing a parlor game here yeah. because he probably, he might've won. I mean, he was still very popular and you wouldn't have had to do the, make the compromise uh, to pull federal troops out of the South and, and, you know, the, the, the gives that you had to give to get Hayes into office without um, a crazy uprising over Tilden's, um, you know, potential election. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's that whole fiasco might've been avoided. Yeah, I love the question. I, I think uh, Grant's popularity would have probably got him in a, a win, but it's possible that Tilden might have, might have pulled it out and you might have had to do the same kind of deal, whether it's Hayes or Grant. Um, I will say this, that had Lincoln not been assassinated and had uh, it gone Lincoln another term and then Grant uh, without Johnson in between, the country would be a very, very different place. And it's an interesting prospect to think about. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's part of me agrees with Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> who, yeah. who even worked, I think you wrote about how she even worked behind the scenes a bit to try to finagle. She, <laughs> she, she doesn't usually step out of bounds, but I think this one she really wanted so badly that she's tried to, tried to force that third term behind his back. She so. really did. She really wanted it. 
So we have a question here. How do we get to a better place of bipartisan support and respect versus our current polarized political strife? And it's so interesting. There are so many people who believe this, who who don't like um, how polarized things are. And yet it's this the the squeaky wheels keep getting the grease when it feels like there are so many and I count myself among them, us, many of us and whoever asked this question, who um really uh are not a fan of 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 the kind of polarization that we see. Yeah, and it's gonna take a cycle where the partisan sides, the ones that play to um the base always, uh lose. Uh, or it's going to have to be a rise of the middle uh, where some candidate, and maybe it's, maybe it is the parties pick uh, polarizing candidates on both sides. And that finally there is a third party that speaks to this rising middle. I do think that the country is in that center spot, center right, center left, depending on what the time is. Um, And that it just takes leadership and and uh, we can also stand to listen to each other more, listen first and then argue about your differences. Um, sometimes there's just not a, a listening uh, to what the other person's saying and it's an automatic hair trigger of some tweet or some uh, put down or something. Uh, and if we elevate our conversation and our ability to listen, then suddenly... Um, maybe that leader appears, but it's going to take a want and a need and you got to get engaged. Um, all I do is cover it. And I try to take the emotion out of it as much as I can. The heat, more heated you get about these things. And I'm not a robot, but I'm trying to portray or cover them fairly. Um, I think if we could take the emotion out of it, it would be good. Well, you know, here in California, we have the top two primary system, which, it's interesting. The parties hate it and the politicians hate it, uh, but the voters like it. And it's one, it was a ballot measure. And I know not every state will, you know, will allows that kind of, uh, that kind of citizen action. Um, it would probably never be passed by a legislature anywhere, but, um, but, you know, I think, you know, one of the only hopes of really getting change is having that kind of, um, really opening it up so that by the time you get to the general election, you're not dealing with like just two crazy people and like, who's the least crazy of these two people um, that that I'm electing <laughs> so that you actually can get, you know, people who mirror the um, the public sentiment maybe a little more closely. Yeah. It's interesting that California is doing that, you know, and, and also the redistricting plan is an independent commission that is not about drawing these uh, congressional districts that look like a straw with a bubble on the top or something, uh, that they're actually real. And there are Democrats and Republicans who are doing it in a, in a fair way. So um, I think there is something to learn, and we'll see how that works for California. Maybe the presidential process switches to regional uh, primaries instead of New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada. Don't know. Maybe that changes the dynamic, too. Uh, and also, I think the the winner take all electoral college rules are really just people get mad at the electoral college, but it's like, yeah, and maybe it's a little wonky. But the truth is, <laughs> where it really gets warped is the, you know, whoever wins the majority gets all the electoral college votes, and that kind of really throws things out of whack. So there, I think there's some um, changes like that that you know might be helpful, but. You could have a Grant walking around right now and we wouldn't know it because our system would squeeze him out very fast, I think. We should say him or her. Or her. And, and I think if they read this book, maybe they get inspired to uh, to take the helm. That's my ultimate hope is that these history books will affect some kid. And the best moment I had in the, all of these book tours was I was at the Reagan Library and I gave a speech and afterwards I was signing books and an eighth grade teacher came up and said, I just want you to know that I'm doing an eighth grade class of three days with all three of your books about the Cold War. And I thought that is why I'm doing this. So uh, hopefully it instructs or helps illuminate uh, the past to some young young kids. Well, and I know plenty of other historians um, agree that uh, that this is a really terrific 
look at the Grant administration and the times he was living in. We got Michael Beschloss here wrote, um, history can help to light the way. Brett Baer's absorbing book shows us why Grant was a far more important president than later generations have given him credit for. And now the crises of civil war, reconstruction, and the deadlock of 1876 resemble the turbulent period we are living through right now. Uh, and so do we, are we looking forward to, uh, uh, if, if, if 1876 and 2020 were, were similar, are we looking for a, a, a haze or what, what are we <laughs> going to, what, what's coming down the pipe? <laughs> Hopefully it's, uh, it's someone who can take the leadership and, um, take the country in a good direction. Um, and we'll see, we'll cover it on all sides and make sure, um, make sure that they're as transparent as they can be. That's the big thing. And just like Grant was concerned about legitimacy, uh, we need to be concerned about the legitimacy of the vote and how, how it's run. Well, should he have been concerned about the South breaking off again? Because it's not clear that it was more than bluster, that, you know, the North maybe was a little sick of re- Reconstruction, but the South had been decimated and might not have really been up for another fight. I mean, was that... Was he just a little freaked out by the prospect of the South breaking away again? But was it really just, uh, you know, a lot of smoke and mirrors? He was uh, legitimately concerned about what was going to happen, but the promises were not kept. And it was, um, the, the country was exhausted. They were exhausted from the Civil War. They were exhausted from federal troops being permanently in the South. Uh, to try to keep the peace. They were exhausted from the 1876 election and, you know, they were kind of spent. And um, so I I think there was a realization that no matter what happened, whoever the leader was, that the reconstruction time was winnowing down Uh, and how to get the South to buy in uh, to the union and agree not to ever fall away again was, was the trick. Um, Trust was the part that he did, the verify and the back end follow up by the leaders who followed Grant, who I think he hoped took the baton that Lincoln started, um, didn't did not happen. All right. Well, uh, we've got time for just one more question. We are running low on time here, but we got one here from the audience and it says, um, what is it about Grant that uniquely positioned himself, uh, positioned him to lead the country through such a dangerous time in our history? I think Grant had uh, a humility. Um, I think he had um, uh, patience and he knew that uh, because of where he had been in his life, um, that things will come around if you dig at it, if you try to solve it, if that there is a way. Uh, And his unique ability to know that he didn't want to go back to war no matter what because of the bodies he saw piled up on those, on those battlefields around the South um, gave him a perspective of how important it was to keep the union together. So that leader for that time was what we needed. Um, I also will put in a word for Samuel Tilden, who chose not to be forceful in his um, pushback of the election results and the commission as it was set up. Uh, he said we shouldn't be fighting again. We should try to negotiate a settlement. And uh, it takes a big person to fall on your sword like that. Um, you know, I lied. I have another question. Um, Colin Powell, yes. uh, in thinking about a Grant Eisenhower uh, figure who sort of transcends party and, um, you know, a military hero, you know, you uh, are you disappointed that he never ran yes, for president? 100%, 100%. Yeah, I think he could have been a great president. And I knew him. Um, he was larger than life in Washington, crossed party lines, uh, had just the trust of a lot of people, national security advisor, joint chiefs chairman, secretary of state, um, had the gravitas and the knowledge uh, to be able to bring people together. He had he been alive today, I would have said is closest to a Grant figure as I could think of in modern times. And, you know, it's sad that his, uh, it, he didn't run for president. He really considered it in 1996, but his wife Alma was concerned, really concerned that there would be 
attempts on his life, assassination attempts, and and that as at then that point the first black president um, that she wasn't sure he would make it, and that's also the vestiges of the Confederacy and and the Jim Crow and all that they went through in all of those years that affected them. But had he been president, I think uh, he would have been closest to the Grant Lincoln legacy. I agree. I agree. Um, Well, Mr. Bayer, thank you so much for joining us today, discussing your new book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876. We want to also thank the Bernard Osher Foundation and, of course, our audience for watching us and participating live. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club of California in, ma- in making this virtual programming, please visit thecommonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you for watching and stay safe and healthy. Cheers. We raise our glass to good health on Friday, November 19th for the Commonwealth Club's virtual gala. This year, we celebrate healthcare heroes who have kept the Bay Area healthy and safe. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash 2021 gala to learn more. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.